politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our liberties, our life, our liberty, our property, everything that's important. Yes, this is 1775, 1776 all over again. We never thought we would live this in our lifetime, but here we are. This is our time. This is our moment. Daniel Hurwitz back in the house today. It is the 21st of February, and no, it is not President's Day, as if we celebrate all the presidents or the majestic power and control of the office. No, we celebrate the one president, George Washington, and the devolution of power embodied by his amazing example. We celebrate self-governance. The fact that we don't have a king. The fact that we don't have a unilateral executive at any level that could just flick his wrist and control your mouth, your nose, your body, your property, and everything about you. And it's time we truly celebrate George Washington's spirit. By the way, his birthday is tomorrow, the actual birthday. By taking back the reins And it's this trucker convoy beginning here, the 23rd. We still have a little bit more freedom than Canada. We have the people are more on our side. Now is our time. Now is our moment. We got to press on. And it's not just about COVID fascism. It's not just even about biomedical fascism. It's about this tyranny that has broken out across all spectrums where we now have a government that has become tyrannical to all of its means and ends, and we need to really do everything we can to create our own sanctuaries and take that government back. And no, it's not just simply voting Republican. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about fraud and force. Fraud and force, what we're up against, and how to combat both. Now, our first sponsor today is mygotodoc.com. Uh, Dr. Saeed Haider, one of the great early treaters of COVID. Um, a lot of you are always asking me, how do I get stuff? How do I get you know medicines on hand? MyGoToDoc.com um, is, a, is a great place to go because it's not only the fact that Dr. Haider's group will prescribe prophylactically ivermectin, maybe some other drugs for you, but also the fact that if you sign up for free, you could actually communicate with one of their um, staff online. You could text with them. This is very important. It's not about any one drug. It's about having the right treatment for the right symptoms for the right individual. And you need a doctor. But unfortunately, 99% of the doctors are going to hell. And again, that's why you got to go to mygotodoc.com. I encourage you to check them out today. Okay, so I want to, I, I do actually want to get back to that ivermectin and treatment and the fraudulent study that came out from Malaysia. It's actually an amazing thing. It actually proves the amazing power of ivermectin. It doesn't prove what they say it does. And it, it, it embodies the fraud that's been put out, that whatever they put out, the opposite is true. Um, but I, I want to make sure we get to the main course today. So we'll see if we have time to get to that study. A lot of you are asking me about it. I want to start off today with a quote from George Orwell. 
Okay, COVID-1984, that's the times we're living in. All tyrannies rule through fraud and force. But once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. Now, I don't think there's ever been a time where this quote has been more applicable than today. Obviously, we're watching what went on in Ottawa, what's going on in Canada. We had Ezra Levant on the show last Friday, if you haven't heard it. Uh, It's only gotten worse since then. Beating people, robbing, they're breaking into stores. They're literally, the cops are like BLM. Um, Seizing bank accounts, no freedom of speech. You can't even walk down the street. They're stopping people walking down the street. So it's not only that you can't protest, you can't even um, walk down the street. Martial law, straight up martial law. If any of you are surprised by this, you're sleeping. As appalling as it is, it's nothing new. I think what's grabbing people is the imagery. It's more tangible. But what do you think it's like to say, I'm going to drag you off a plane. I'm going to criminalize your breathing. You're going to lose your job if you don't get an injection, even if it were safe, much less how dangerous and appalling it turns out every day. If government could control your body and your breath, meaning not just regulate what you can do, but regulate your inactivity and force you to take a positive action to your body, what can they not do to you? Okay, what what's left? What can they not do to you? Certainly they could say you can't walk on the street. L- let me ask you, what's more tyrannical to say you can't go anywhere, do anything if you don't cover your breathing holes and get a shot? Or just don't go on these kind of five square blocks around Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Well, the latter, I'm not saying they have the right to do it. They definitely don't. But I'm saying it's actually less tyrannical than what they've already done. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that's what's been done in America. That's what's been done in America. My heart goes out to those truckers. Because it's truly, a they're in bad shape. Because public opinion in Canada is still bad. The people are that brainwashed. And they still stood up. But what the truckers did, that was the greatest act since the Boston Tea Party. I don't know what's going to be with Canada. But what I do know is that they catalyzed a movement that that we all thought would come in April, May, June of 2020. And it didn't. And it took almost two years. But they catalyzed a global movement. And obviously the most important country is our own country. And they catalyzed an idea that I think we have the opportunity to take this to the sky. Because in America, the public opinion definitely has changed. What hasn't changed is the behavior of the Republican Party at a leadership level. And that's what we need to deal with. But at least at the, at, uh, in terms of the people, the polling has really, really changed on this. And that's why we have with this convoy beginning... Um, the the 23rd and ending around March 11th in D.C., this is where I really think it's our time to shine. This is our time to shine. You know, when we celebrate George Washington's birthday, which was the 22nd, I want you guys to know this if you don't know the history. 
There's no such thing as President's Day. It's made up. The, the term is, I think, from like mattress companies or something because they wanted these weekend sales. In 1879 is when they created a national holiday of not the, you know, a Monday around this time of year, random Monday. It was the 22nd of February, which is George Washington's birthday. It was his birthday. Now, what happened was in 1868 when they had that new act to make like, you know, all the federal holidays come out over a weekend to give the stupid federal workers a long weekend as if they don't already have enough vacation, much more than any private worker does. So then sometime after that is when it got de- you know detached from Washington's actual birth date. I mean, usually it doesn't fall out on the date anymore. And then, you know, they just somehow called it President's Day. But what we're celebrating is the example of the man who had the power. Twice he had the opportunity to be a king, and he declined. Once after the end of the war, when he resigned his commission, much, you know, not only didn't he become king, he actually resigned as general. And then obviously, once he became president, he could have seized power. He didn't. And not only didn't he seize power as a king, but even as a president, he set the precedent of only running for two terms. And that is what we celebrate. We celebrate self-government. That we don't have the notion that any mayor, governor, president could just say, I think this is good for your health. I think this is what the science says. I think... This is what is prudent, and therefore I can do whatever the hell I want. You could think something's prudent, and within a a, a bounds of, you you could think if you're a mayor or county executive, I think it's prudent to have garbage collection on Thursday instead of Friday or whatever, and someone could disagree with you, but if you're the executive, that's your decision. You could do that. But there are certain things that are off limits in a constitutional republic. There's limited things you can do. There's things that you can do in consult with the legislative branch. You could pass a statute, but you can't do unilaterally. And then there's things that you can't even pass a statute and do. And to rule over another human being's body is something that can never be done. And that's what we celebrate. George Washington also ominously said, if freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. And that's where we are in our era, where we've come full circle and we have a degree of executive authority in this country that's greater by a magnitude of a thousand than anything King George wielded and anything that actually served as the impetus for the revolution in George Washington. That's where we need to head with this trucker convoy movement and the medical freedom movement to not just... To talk about one or two different mandates, but the entire COVID fascism, but not just all of COVID fascism, but the entire biomedical fascism, and not just biomedical fascism, but the entire breakdown of due process and the separation of powers and the role of the states, the role of the federal government, the role of the executive branch, and what is reserved to the people. We need to harness this opportunity to finally, finally return constitutional governance, I personally don't think it's going to happen at a federal level, but at least in a few states, 
That's what needs to happen. I want to elaborate on this point. Um, our, our next sponsor is Bambi. Talking about executive authority, it's funny. So, you know, uh, private companies can now mask you. They could violate human rights, violate the number code, but they can't simply hire who they, whoever they want. Right? It's funny. Now they're like, oh, private business could do what they want. Really? Talk to anyone who runs a business. HR issues can kill your business. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage, labor regs, bogus discrimination allegations. An HR manager typically costs $70,000 a year. That's money you don't have for your business. Bambi, and that's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, they have a cr- created specifically a plan for small businesses where it's not just you call into an empty hotline and they'll give you any guy from India. They have a dedicated HR manager that will craft your HR policy for 99 bucks a month. Um, turn HR, which is your biggest liability, into your biggest strength with Bambi. Um, you can chat by phone, email real time. They customize your policies to fit your business. It's also month to month, no hidden fees. You could cancel anytime. So it's not, you know, twelve hundred a year. It's ninety nine a month. Um, and also, they they'll they're willing to give you a free HR audit. So all of you have a small business out there, and you're looking to save money on HR. Go to Bambi.com/slash/conservative right now. Get a free HR audit. Again, that's Bambi.com slash conservative. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on being a schlepper for the government. All right. So what I, what I mean here is there's several action items I think we need. Right now, we have the convoy. I don't know if they timed it like this, but it ends March 11th. That is the deadline for the omnibus bill, the government funding bill. Now, we have agencies that are violating every facet of the Constitution, violating human rights. They're violating the Nuremberg Code. And Congress now has their say. Now is the time to fund government for the rest of the fiscal year. Are you going to fund that behavior? Okay, we had about, I don't remember, it was about 31 Republicans who voted against the budget bill in the Senate. We need 41. We need about 10 more. They need to be pressured like anything. That's what the convoy needs to be about. Red lines that the emergency gets terminated, all of the mandates, and that we have an understanding that this can never happen again. And I think that really needs to be done more at a state level. But it can never happen again. It's time to stop the ambiguity. It's time to stop straddling the fence. You know, just this week, in my religion, we read Kings 1821 in our cycle. That's the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And there's a very fascinating Line One of the really most powerful lines of the Bible, Kings 18.21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, it's kind of cryptic because why is it so bad to straddle the fence? I mean, it's bad, but isn't it worse to follow Baal? Why is it one or the other? Say, follow God. Don't follow Baal ever. And the reason is very simple. 
Because yes, indeed, the worst thing you can do is straddle the fence, is create a new normal that this is what normalcy looks like because that is enduring and that is permanent. Bail is not sustainable. As we're going to talk about, force and fraud. Fraud is unsustainable in the long term. You can't fool all the people all the time. Eventually, it does come out. It might be a month, a year or two in this case. It will come out. Bail is unsustainable. The worst thing you can have is when you serve God a little bit, but you mix it with some bail. Because you satiate your inherent desire spiritually in your soul to seek the truth, because you're getting a little bit of the truth, but you're mixing it in with the falsity. So you make bail more sustainable. I said this to you guys. I remember in April 2020, you remember me saying this. I was like, I would rather keep the lockdown, the full stay-at-home orders longer to get the truth out than have it open up with the masking and other stuff because I said that's going to be long-term, and I was right because I knew the lockdown wasn't sustainable. The biggest thing politically that you need to understand where we are is this. Public opinion is on our side. God has given us a God-made great reset. We have our own opportunity to reset the great reset. We could do so much now. We could destroy, not just destroy COVID fascism, but actually get to a greater level of freedom than we had even before if we play our cards right. We could go after all the medical surveillance. We could go after all this stuff. Vaccine mandates in schools for other shots. We could create a better medical system. But what the Democrats are seeking to do is to let the air out of the balloon. Okay, well, we're not going to mass children forever. But they reserve the prerogative to do so. Fauci is already talking about doing this every flu. He said this a couple times. He said it again uh, last week, every flu season. They're going to continue this. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The Republicans, for their part, rather than using public opinion and crushing them and investigating this, all the frauds, the terrible things that they've done with the shots that every day it just shocks the consciousness, the data on that and the lack of early treatment, the war on treatment. We could get constitutional amendments in every state. Why am I the only one talking about such an achievable goal? It's not like the federal constitution. These red states, you could easily get it on the ballot. But what they're going to do is allow that Overton window to move. You see, the, the, the problem, if you, if you go through the book of Judges, Samuel, and Kings, you have that, I want to say, five, 700-year window. The Israelites were straddling the fence for hundreds of years. This was Elijah's problem. He was like, it's time to cut the crap out. He understood that Baal can't sustain. They would serve Baal for 50 years, and then they'd go back, and they'd kind of, they'd, they'd, they'd repent. They'd get a prophet. They'd repent. They'd vanquish their enemies. Then what happens? They're fat and happy, and they return to sinning again and doing idolatry. And it was over and over again throughout the book of Judges. He was like, the, I, I want this over with. Pick a side. Because the problem is, 
if you allow some fraud to be mixed with some truth, it makes it more sustainable. And that's how you do it long term. I would rather keep the mass mandates in place and some of these other things. Because Biden, it wouldn't surprise me. I'm hearing, you know, next week's State of the Urine address, Tuesday night. It wouldn't surprise me if Biden announces the easing of, of some of the stuff. They have to do it. They know they have to do it. The worst thing that could happen is, oh, we got what we wanted and we go home. And that's what Republicans and Mitch McConnell are going to try to do when there's so much more that needs to be uprooted. That will make it, the worst thing you could have is to redefine what normal looks like. Everyone knows this is not normal. The worst thing you could do, oh yeah, we're going back to normal, it's time to live with it. But then you leave the war on treatment. You leave the hospital genocide. You leave the mandates on people that matter a lot, but not on a broad amount of people. And all the while, you continue having the NIH and the FDA work with Big Pharma to create more viruses, to create more um, bioweapon shots, which they're absolutely doing. And again, my friends, it's not even just about the next virus that they're absolutely going to do. Bill Gates was just talking about this over the weekend. He, he guaranteed again there's another one within six months. And believe me, that's one thing he tells the truth on because he would know. It's about the fact that we now have a government that could declare there's an emergency. We need to reform all of emergency powers. You're a threat. It's not just about COVID. We saw this with January 6th. We literally have people who are rounded up without due process and literally did not commit a crime. That is happening in this country. Okay? Let, let's just say the next thing is the, I mean, let, let's pick something we know about already. Global warming. Anyone who writes something against it, you're anti-science and you're a threat to the public, and we're going to come and uh, not just censor you, but the next step is we're going we're gonna to freeze your, your bank account. Okay? It's already happening in, in Canada. We're one step behind. That needs to be fixed. Because once we've exposed the fraud, they have to rely exclusively on force. So while we still have a little bit of freedom and we have public opinion on our side, we have momentum, we have this trucker convoy going, headed into this budget bill with Biden, record low approval rating, Democrats getting slaughtered in the polls, headed into a midterm election. Now is the time when we have to stop this diffidence, stop this unsure straddling of the fence. For my entire lifetime, the phony conservative movement, the phony Republican Party, they never militated against it. It's kind of like, you know, I, I spoke about this before with the trannyism. They can't stand up before the people and say, God created only two, two types of people. A man's not a woman. A woman's not a man. Instead, it's like, well, we don't want to mess up female sports. Like, that's the only thing they'll go after. They always make the weakest argument, but agree to the premise. You look at Kay Ivey, that dirtbag lesbian governor of, um, of uh, Alabama, of all states, 
I applaud the Alabama schools and universities who have made the decision to end mask mandates. Given the health data we've seen in Alabama across the country, I encourage all schools to continue removing these mandates. We don't need them in Alabama. So she never agrees to the fact that it was wrong. It's illogical, immoral, illegal, and inhumane. Doesn't work. Causes harm. You don't have the legal authority to do that anyway. No, we don't need it now. Time to move on. That is how long how you to opinions have you straddled the fence. That is the worst form of idolatry. They're helping the Democrats make long, you know, you have long COVID. So long COVID fascism sustainable. That's what they're going to do. Now is our time to go and fix some of these executive power problems, these these emergency powers problems, the creeping medical surveillance state that was already too problematic before COVID. Now we have the impetus to do it. Okay? Now we have them. And and by the way, I'm just reading. um, This is from CNBC interview. This is a direct quote from Bill Gates. We'll have another pandemic. It will be a different pathogen next time. Okay, so they're, they're not done with this. They're not done with our freedoms. So that's one action item with the convoy. Another thing I'm working on is this. I have an article out today. It's time for red states to offer asylum to the Canadians, the Canadian truckers that are being prosecuted, where they could run across the border to North Dakota, Montana, and Idaho in, sp- in particular, Those are red states that border there. And for the governors and the legislatures to announce they're giving them asylum. Well, Daniel, I didn't know a state couldn't do that. Isn't that federal? Well, I didn't know the federal government could violate the INA and state sovereignty and invade us with millions of illegals and call that asylum when they're a bunch of economic migrants. So you know what? If the federal government's going to use that and abuse asylum, for nothing but a payoff for cheap labor and cheap cheap voters, then you better believe we're going to use it for the quintessential paradigm of asylum. This is exactly what it was meant to be. Asylum, at its core, if you look in the INA, um, 8 U.S.C. Uh, 1158, the core of it is people are criminalized solely for, quote, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. And that is exactly what's going on in Canada. We need to offer them asylum. Why is immigration only a tool for social transformation and cheap labor and cheap votes? Shouldn't it benefit America and actually also be real asylum? Let's let in Canadians. That's what I would openly offer that if I were a governor. Think about it. Just in January alone, 154,000 illegals were caught in one month at the border. Okay? That's more than quadruple the amount from January two years ago. 62,573 migrants were released into the U.S. alone. That's more than the number that ICE deported during the entire fiscal year. So we have trash criminals. I can't tell you how many stories I haven't had time to cover. Sex offenders, all sorts of problems coming over. And at a minimum, even if they're benign, 
there's certainly not asylum. There's no religious, ethnic, political persecution of these people, different from the other people that are in El Salvador and Guatemala. Think about it. Why should immigration be solely a tool for the masters of the universe? The same big tech companies that are pushing COVID fascism are, and, and, and persecuting people are the ones pushing bogus asylum. So why not use it for real asylum? Congressman Mo Brooks, who's running for Senate in Alabama, he's the best one running there. Um, he, he talked about this. Uh, Yvette Harrell, a uh, congresswoman from New Mexico, she's a friend of mine. Um, she has a, uh, she's introducing a bill to do this. But again, we don't have the votes at a federal level to do this. I don't think we need to wait. Do it at a state level. Screw it. If the federal government is going to vitiate sovereignty, is, is going to uninvite, is going to invite people that they have no legal authority to invite under a bastardized version of asylum into the states, then states should be able to invite true asylees. This, is, this has been, by the way, a plan of mine for a long time. We need to use power the same way the left does. They want to use immigration to create their voters. Well, why do we have to have two-bit third countries as, as our entire immigration system? Why not have people in Western democracies that think like us and they're being persecuted, bring them to America and increase our numbers. This is something we need to be openly talking about, openly pushing. You should have sheriffs in all the localities say, we will not work with the United States federal government or Canadian authorities to extradite them. In fact, we're going to actively protect them. And that leads me to another action item I have. I'm, I'm, I'm working with sheriffs. I'm trying to call them up, and I think you know you guys should call your respective sheriffs. One of the things we need, when, when you're looking at what's going on in Ottawa, I was the first to say this, and I stand behind it. I actually support abolishing the big urban metro police departments because they're not stopping crime anyway. Where I live in, in the Baltimore region, it is terrible. The carjackings, everything. And even if the police do their job, it doesn't matter anyway because the judicial system lets them go. They don't wind up in, in, in jail. So they could only be used, the presence of urban police could only be used as tools for the tyrannical governors and mayors. Screw it. We don't need that. We do have rural sheriffs. Those people need to be used. Mark Lamb has already has a program of a sheriff's posse. We need to grow that and expand it to many other jurisdictions. Where you basically have a synergistic relationship between the people and local law enforcement. Where you create a posse. See, if you start creating your own militia, the, the FBI is going to come in and mow you down. We need it to be done under the color of law, the doctrine of least magistrate. And this is how you, you not only have you know community safety, if you have BLM or whatever, criminals come in, but the real important thing that you don't want to say publicly, but I will, is really to interpose against tyranny. The feds coming in, meaning we, we need a scenario like this. If the FBI knocks on my door, and says, I'm arresting you for putting out misinformation, which don't think we're not at the foothill of that mountain, because we are, right? They're already putting that in the terrorism threat assessment. So 
it's only one step over for them to actually act on that. Okay? To them, that is a bigger threat than someone saying, I want to kill the president. I want to kill whatever. You know, I want to, you know, um, commit a suicide bombing or something like that. To them, that's a bigger threat. You actually exposing the truth of, of the vaccines and that, 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 that is a criminal act. And that's what we're seeing in Canada. We cannot wait until we get into that position because then we don't have a, a way of stopping it like the Canadians. They're screwed. I think the next step they're going to go on is just boycotting and not delivering goods. But their, their thing in Ottawa is over with. right? There's no way they could have stood up to that. Nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud. Okay? That is what, that, that's the only way to preserve uh, liberty. That's what we need to do. Get sheriffs on board with a sheriff's posse program. So if they would come to me, I mean, it's never going to happen where I live, and I, I plan on moving, but I need to find a place, and all of us need to find a place, where I need to know this red county in this red state, if I were to go there, and the FBI would knock on my door, I can give a call, and the citizens' posse would come out and surround the house, and the sheriff's deputies would come out with the sheriff there, preferably also with the county prosecutor, county council, council and executive officials, county judges, everyone on the same page, unified, with a bullhorn, the sheriff gets on, they draw their weapons at the FBI, and they say, you have two minutes to leave or you're dead. That's what ultimately needs to happen. One of the things I'm pushing on is for sheriffs to put out a statement in response to what's going on in Ottawa and in anticipation of our own trucker convoy beginning that this crap won't won't get off the ground in America. We will not. I'm just following orders from a mayor or a governor is not a proper answer. The Nuremberg defense, that's been repudiated. As lawmen, we are not going to follow political orders when the, when the Constitution supersedes those orders. We swear an oath as a sheriff to uphold the Constitution. Our job is to protect the public and the right to protest. And so long as people aren't acting violent, they have a right to assemble, they have a right to protest, and we're not only not going to listen to orders to clamp down on them illegally, but we're actively going to protect them against others who seek to violate human rights, constitutional rights, the right to assemble, the right to protest, the right to petition for address of grievances. This is what we need to do. In a sane world, you'd have Republicans. You, we, have, we have eight days to the State of the Urine Address. Biden's requiring all Republicans to humiliate themselves to him, sit there with an N95 on their face in the audience while he talks, and get swabbed before. Not a single Republican should submit to that. I want to see how many are. A hundred percent of them should boycott it. They should hold an event with the truckers on that very day and announce that they are voting against the budget bill. There will not be a budget funding bill for Biden's government until or unless our demands are made. And you have an event with people like Urso and Corey and Ryan Cole, and you have them all speak to each aspect of the fraudulence, which we have so much more material on this. Did you know 
This just came out. New York Times. New York Times. Straight up headline today. That um, they announced, I've been proven right. I stepped out on a limb where no one else would. Where no one else would. It turns out that the CDC had data all along about hospitalizations by VAC status. Why do we always have to cite the UK? Why didn't our own country have it? Of course they had it. New York Times reports, they have the data. They didn't want to release it because they didn't want people to look at the vaccination rates of the people hospitalized and draw the wrong conclusions. So all those times when those dirtbags were engaging in a blood libel against our people, every one of them, and you know who you are, all the people in the hospital are unvaccinated. It was bull from day one, and it only got worse as the thing leaked. And now it's negative, both on hospitalization and case rates. It was negative on case rates from day one. Never worked. But we know they were lying the entire time. Everything I said at the time was right. Straight up in a New York Times article today. So, folks, this is our time. This is our fight. The fraud and the force. We need to debunk the fraud and neutralize the force. By the way, it's it's unbelievable. There's a cli- I'm not serious. It's posted on clinicaltrials.gov, a psychological study on messaging to push the vaccine. They actually have a study on messaging. The sponsor is MIT. The collaborators are Facebook, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, and NIH. Government, media, all the institutions, Big Pharma, all working together to push their own product and study the effect of their own propaganda. If this doesn't tell you how infiltrated the universities, big tech, big pharma, the academia, and the U.S. government is, I don't know what does. You can't fix that. You have to break away from it, separate from it, legally ensure protections against it, and start our own alternatives. That is our only choice today. Now, at this juncture, I have a choice to make because... I have so many items in my stack here that I wanted to get to, but if I pursue the next thing, it will take probably the rest of the time, but I think it's worth it. A lot of you are asking me about this Malaysian study published in JAMA uh, over the weekend or late last week um, where they came out with a money quote, which was, of course, designed for the conclusion In this randomized clinical trial of high-risk patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, ivermectin treatment during early illness did not prevent progression to severe disease. And they wanted that quote to uh, uh, banty about, and they got their quote. And everyone always asks me, Daniel, Daniel, what do I say to this? What do I say to this? Now, before we get into anything, I just want to say, You understand the degree of fraud that we're talking about today, fraud and force, 
there's nothing they won't make. They've they've made up and withheld and manipulate manipulated much worse. You see the DMED data. There's nothing they won't do. So when you have their own journals and their own people sponsoring their own stuff, clearly, so it's not just that they lie about their stuff. They also put out trials about their competitors or things that compete with their stuff. They actually fund it quietly to, you know, have fraudulent data. We're going to have on Wednesday, we're going to have a whistleblower, Brooke Jackson, who helped coordinate um, one of the centers that did the trials for Pfizer in Texas. <clears throat> and she she actually has a court document now because it's a wrongful termination suit. She has about 14 different allegations. And she she talks about them. I, I spoke to her, you know, privately. They they directly fraud you know just just forge data. It's just straight up fraudulent. Um, but the irony is here, if you look into their data, you look into the design. Not only does it prove the opposite of what they want to say, it actually jives perfectly with the clinical experience that all the doctors I've worked with seen and I've seen firsthand from dealing with several hundred people, getting them treatment, watching the progression, and watching what goes on. And if those of you who remember, especially in November, December, some of those shows I would speak for an hour almost exclusively on, <clears throat> on treatment, you'll remember how I talked to you about what it does, what it doesn't do, what timing, which drugs are important at which moment, what it does, and it actually perfectly encapsulates it. What they do is they design – first thing you have to understand is I could design you a trial and get any result I want to get, okay? So randomized controlled trials are bull. They're important in a certain respect, but it's the preponderance of evidence that matters. It all matters. Retrospective, mechanisms of action, um, epidemiological comparisons. <clears throat> it's one piece of the puzzle. But if you focus solely on that and you have an agenda, there is no way you could be barred from trying to manipulate it. But fortunately, to their credit, they actually are pretty transparent. Not in their abstract and their conclusion, which they know is all the media is going to read, and it's designed like that. But if you actually read it, you get a perfect picture of what did and didn't go on here. And it basically proves the opposite. So... What they do is they design trials for drugs they don't like. They design it to fail. And then they design a trial for the drugs they do like that it could only succeed. So what they did was, for as I go through this study, I'm going to go back and forth with Paxlovid. Right? This is the amazing drug that they made standard of care now. Um, approved, bought billions of dollars of doses for. So their standard was, they had a trial, it was guaranteed used within 72 hours of symptoms. 72 hours of symptoms. So that was truly very early on. And indeed with Molnipiravir, Merck's drug, we have from India, they said when they tried it on moderate covid more you know, advanced, moderate COVID, it had zero efficacy, which we know that. 
because Paxlovid and Monopiravir, aside from their dangers, they're exclusively antiviral, and there's no way it could work later on. Zero. There's no way it could work. So they designed a study here in Malaysia for ivermectin that absolutely 100% would have failed Molnupiravir and Paxlovid, 100%. And in fact, here with ivermectin, we wound up with a 70% reduction in mortality. We're going to get to that straight up in their data. Okay, 10 people died at the end of the day. 10 people died in the control group. Three died in the ivermectin group. That is straight up um, 70% reduction. Now, yes, we understand it's it's a little, it's, it's um, underpowered. So the statistical significance, the p-value, is not where you want to get it. Typically, you want to get 95% confidence interval. It's 91. Okay, it's not that far off. We're not the ones trying to say, this study shows 70% reduction in mortality. We're saying it actually jives with the preponderance of evidence we're seeing, but we're not relying solely on this. They're the ones relying on this to affirmatively say it doesn't work. When in fact, their own data, straight up, there's a 91% chance that there's a 70% reduction in mortality. So before we get into anything fancy, that's what it says. Now, they say that's not their primary outcome. So because they designed the study, it was more progression to severe illness, not mortality. So um, they're like, well, you know, it, it failed that. But they said, well, the secondary outcomes, well... That might have been your secondary outcome, but that's a pretty doggone important one. In fact, it's the most important one. Okay? Mechanical, basically, 10 people needed to be vented in the control group, and 10 people died. I don't know if it's the same 10. It's probably mainly the 10, if not all of them, but it could be you could have one on the vent that didn't die, but then you had one from another cohort that did. Not clear. They don't have the cross tabs. Four died in, four were mechanically ventilated in ivermectin group, and mortality, it was 10 to 3. Okay? So in other words, it wound up being a death rate of 4% died in the stud in the placebo group, 1.7% in the control group. It's underpowered, but not by that much. Not by that much. So that's the headline you don't see, but that's just the beginning. I didn't even scrape the surface here. Now, first of all, so they have about 240 people in each group. Why did they underpower it? They had all the funding they wanted. They had this going on for months, long time ago. They weren't in a rush. I was speaking to Dr. Urso about this. He was like, dude, just in my place alone, we've done more people than that within that period of time. And yet they had to get 20, I'm not kidding you, 20 centers to get to 240 in each group. Something that that in itself is extremely fishy. You're in Malaysia, okay, a third world country. It's funny. It has to come from Malaysia. Why couldn't it come from America? Very interesting. It came from Malaysia. I mean, you you pay anyone 500 bucks there, you could get anything you want, but 20 different things. By the way, also another thing too, um, Urso mentioned to me the names on this study, the lead authors, they're literally like nobodies. They're nobodies. 
you don't get something published as your first thing in JAMA as a nobody. That just doesn't happen. So what that tells you is that this was orchestrated. There's someone much bigger behind this that actually did it that has that's probably related to Pfizer or something, but he couldn't put his name on because of conflict of interest. So they had a bunch of straw man random dudes do this. Because I'm just telling you, you don't get published in JAMA. Stephen Chun Loon Lim is the head guy here. And it's like, really? Something something is is very, very funny. Okay, he's in uh, the Department of Medicine in uh, some hospital in Perak, Malaysia. Okay, a bunch of Malaysian dudes. But I can guarantee you this was coming from the West, not from Malaysia. Um, so, so here's the deal. Um, they want to say it failed. Now, in fact, what this actually does is it proves everything we told you. What did I tell you about ivermectin throughout Delta? So first of all, this was Delta. Two things you need to understand is it was like June through September. So almost exclusively Delta. Wasn't the Wuhan strain, wasn't Omicron. It was Delta, very vicious. Delta was the worst. It was 100% comorbidities. And they're open about this, meaning everyone was over 50, a lot over 65, no one under 50, and everyone had at least one comorbidity. There was a lot of obesity there, and Delta. Okay? I'm not done yet. Nobody got treatment until they were in the hospital. They call it early treatment, but it's a misnomer. It's a lie. It's moderate COVID. 66% had COVID lung upon admission on the, on the CT scans or, or the chest x-rays, the x-rays, not the CT scans. Um, 66% had bed... Uh, uh, scans. There were problems. Dude, that's not early treatment. They already had COVID pneumonia, 66%. They were already in the hospital. Why were they in the hospital? You don't go to the hospital in Malaysia unless you're bad off. They call it early treatment. And and it's complicated. They, I, I could talk about the games, how they're able to do that. Remember, Paxlovid, Molnipiravir. Those studies... We're all within, they approved it within five days. They got their emergency approval, but the studies were three days, 72 hours. Here they were already at hospitals. Now they say five days here, but it was five days from diagnosis. Even in America, people don't get diagnosed right away, if, especially if they're waiting for PCR testing. That could easily be seven, eight, nine days. And certainly in, in Malaysia. So I doubt it was really five days truly from symptoms, probably more like seven, eight, but they call it five, five days. But the point is, that's what we call moderate COVID. Your SATs are starting to drop already. You have some degree of pneumonia, roughly speaking. You could have other things. That's what it is. It's not early treatment where it's just kind of fever or, you know, cold-like symptoms. It's not late stage where you're on a, you know, either ventilator or really, you know, 100% flow on BiPAP already. You have some multiple issues going on, certainly organ issues. That's called moderate COVID. And moderate COVID runs the gamut. So it's a lot of different phases within that, much more, some much more serious than others. So right away, the starting point of the trial was not early treatment. 
So straight up, this was not an early treatment study. It's a straight up lie from their own thing. I mean, you, it, it's not like one data point. That's their whole thing. You just read it. It's, it's a mid-level, it's a moderate COVID study. So we don't have any data on what would have happened had you given them it's 0.4 mg per keg, and they say they took it after um, food, so they dosed it properly and did it properly, but we don't have early treatment. It's a moderate treatment. Delta comorbidities, every single one of them, moderate treatment. That is right off the bat something that Paxlovid and Monopiravir were not subjected to. They were very healthy people, of course, as Pfizer did in their vaccine trials. And it was within three days of symptoms. And I guarantee you, they jumped on it like anything. They made sure they got it at the front end. This, we have no real good quality control. There's a lot of suspicious things going on there. But even if you take it face value, 66% had COVID lung, what they described as COVID lung. That's the starting point of the trial. Well, Daniel, okay, but didn't you say that ivermectin is better than Paxlovid and this stuff because it does have anticoagulant and anti-inflammatory, so it should work. Weren't we saying it works later stage? Absolutely. 70% reduction on mortality, 60% reduction on ventilation. It is a little bit underpowered, but that's not our fault. That's their study. And we're not trying to prove definitive. And, and Pierre Corey made an important statement. He said, look, the freaking 95% confidence interval is something you apply when you're doing like what you have with the shots and Paxlovid. It's a novel therapy. It has no safety profile. It's new. It could have potential problems. So you've got to really make sure you have this good. Whereas if you have a four-decade drug that is safer than over-the-counter and it's won the Nobel Prize and you just want to look on efficacy... And you have, instead of 95% confidence, you have 91% that has a 70% freaking reduction. Even when you started off with COVID lung, holy hell, that's an amazing result. And we need to use that. And that's their own study. Okay. So now you might ask, Daniel, well, okay, so then what happens in between? Why is it that it failed? So what they're saying is they, they basically had a perfect starting point and end point. Let's say starting point is early treatment those first few days. That's really where you want to do it. And the end point is really dying. That's mortality. They picked five days, which when I'm telling you practically, it was probably more like day eight based on pathophysiologically what they're describing. It's not day five. It's probably more like day eight. Comorbid people, obese people, and then from day five and the end point was day eight. Did you progress to a more severe stage? And actually, what they found was there's slightly more, not statistically significant, but if anything, slightly more in the ivermectin group proceeded. So that's where they're able to say they, they, they picked. Remember, we talked about snapshots. They It was not early treatment. It was mid-treatment. And they had a very soon cutoff. Oh no, they didn't clear up in three days, so we're we're good to go. It, it didn't didn't make a difference. But then, well, fewer people died, so clearly it did make a difference. But you might be asking, well, Daniel, well, why 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 is it? Well, number one, it, the whole thing could be a fraud, and there's a lot of signs in that.
But I dug into it. So at first time I read it, I took their word for it. When they said, you know, it's randomized controlled trial. So you, when you have a blinded controlled trial, then you look afterwards and you look, you, you try to find out, okay, well, what was the spread on comorbidities? And they're like, you know, it's pretty even. It's a nice spread. It was even. So I took their word for it that it was even. But then I was like, wait a minute, let me look. And I found, so it was something, I, I'm, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's something like 54 in the ivermectin group proceeded to severe disease at, you know, it's like one-fourth, one-fifth or something, and 63 in the placebo group. So it's about a difference of nine, I think. I looked at the numbers and obesity, people with BMI over 30, among that cohort that proceeded, there were 20 in the ivermectin and 12 in the placebo. So right off the bat, that, that's a huge difference. I mean, the numbers are low, the raw numbers, but percentage, that's a big difference. That's, that, that almost makes up the whole thing. They also seem to be a little bit older, too. Anyone who treated, I, I, I spoke with Urso about this today, so this is just not my own non-doctor opinion, and, and, and he backed me up on this. He was like, look, Delta obesity was a killer. He was like, I would take a 70-year-old thin guy over a 40-year-old obese guy. It was really obesity. It was a big, big problem with Delta. So he putting it all together, here's what we think happened with the trial. What happened with the trial is what we know happened in reality, which is this. Ivermectin has two stages, has two different things. There's, I mean, there's more, but let's just say antiviral, anti-inflammatory. You get it early, you head off both because it's antiviral and because it's anti-inflammatory. The goal, as I was like drumming it into your brains for months, head off the pulmonary. Head off. Don't get yourself into trouble. And that it works phenomenally well. Not 100%. Nothing's 100%. And that's why we want multiple drugs. And that's a whole other thing. None of us are saying this is monotherapy. Okay? That's not our opinion. Our, when we say early treatment, we don't mean one. We mean at least three, four drugs mixed with NAC and some supplements and the D and the C and the zinc, right? It's multiple things. Okay, none of us are telling you we have a silver bullet. But nonetheless, ivermectin has been proven to really be the broadest that you could, like, in other words, you're not going to use some of these other drugs we use at an early stage. You're not going to use metformin. You know, it's sometimes not well tolerated. It's a diabetes drug. You're not going to use that out of the gate. You're going to use that when you're really scared the guy's going to, you know, you know, have dried up, you know, pulmonary fibrosis there. His lungs are going to dry up. But, you know, ivermectin you could use any time, and that's why we use it. With the original strain, yes. I would say it was close to silver bullet, especially early. Delta, no. I mean, you know, I, I was never advertising that. I was like, it's part of your smorgasbord it's part of your plate but you got to build around it it's the centerpiece you build around it but so you either you do it early or okay let's say you didn't get treatment these people did not get treatment they're they come to the hospital their sats are dropping most of them have some form of of organizing pneumonia covid lung covid pneumonia you know you see the crystals on the on the x-ray right they have that. Right now, they haven't gotten D, C, zinc, hydroxy, ivermectin, um, NAC, um, 
None of this stuff. Right there. I will tell you in our own experience, what we experienced is at that point, you're going to suffer. Right? That die is cast. You're going to need to be on oxygen, and it might even still get a little bit worse within those number of days. But if you start taking ivermectin, it is anti-inflammatory, and eventually it will usually stop the crashing. Hence, that's the outcome. Right? None of us will tell you if you didn't take ivermectin early and you wait till the pulmonary phase and you only use ivermectin, you're going to have to be on. I mean, we had a lot of people like that. They, they had to go home with nasal cannula. And some of them were even for a week or two. They had to stay on oxygen. The notion that once you hit pulmonary, you're going to clear that it's a vicious virus that you're going to be able to be off oxygen completely after three days. There's no drug that can do that. Not doing that. But what it does do is it stops you from dying. But not 100%. 70% reduction. That's awesome. But you know what? We don't want 70%. We want 100%. Which is why if someone got pulmonary already, and they had delta, and they had comorbidities, which I all did here, every one of them, it was a study exclusively of people that either had diabetes, heart, um, I'm not sure if obesity counted as a separate comorbidity. I'm not sure. Um, you have to look at it. But it's, it's published in JAMA titled Efficacy of Ivermectin Treatment on Disease Progression Among Adults with Mild to Moderate COVID. And, and that's a lie. You read the study. It's not mild to moderate. It's moderate. Moderate and some were, were likely somewhat severe at the point they had it. That is completely not true. You will – there's nothing we can do for you to stop you from having to be on oxygen. You're going to have to be on oxygen, and some, especially if you're obese, and that probably explains why ivermectin group initially, because it doesn't make sense. How could more people, not statistically significant, but slightly more people seem to progress to get a little bit more severe with ivermectin, but then at the end, pretty statistically significant, but not where the, just below the standard reduction in mortality and ventilation. doesn't make sense. But what, what, what I think if you put it all together, it does in that they had very obese people. You take an obese person, you don't treat them be, before pulmonary. They get pulmonary. They're going to have to be on, on full oxygen, and they might even get worse for a few days. But if you start getting the ivermectin in them, you'll really reduce death, but not 100%. 70%. That sounds about right. That I lived this experience with people. We've seen this. But folks, we never said, even from day one, we're not saying only ivermectin. But certainly, if you get pulmonary, ivermectin is not even the most important thing at that point. We'll give it to you, and it will definitely help. Definitely worth doing. It's a freebie. Because of its safety profile, why not? That's where a guy like Urso is going to tell you, we're going to get the nebulized budesonide on you. We're going to get H1 and H2 antihistamine blockers. We're going to get the famotidine and the ciproheptidine in. We're going to get the phenofibrate into you. Obviously, the supplements like NAC and whatever, you, you, you might want to address, you know, um, blood clotting with heparin and uh, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, natokinase, the over-the-counter supplement for, for, for microclotting um, and, and anticoagulant, broad spectrum. And then certainly the methylpred. Methylpred is a huge deal. He's like, that's what you want to get the steroids. Steroids, you got to shut off that inflammation. 
Ivermectin's an awesome anti-inflammatory. But when you have organizing pneumonia showing up already in the scans, you don't just put in ivermectin on them and they're done. I mean, I think if you had a non-comorbid study, healthier people. So yeah, I mean, I mean Sabine Hazen, you know, she shows on her Twitter every day. She has she has all her patients. Literally, it's creepy. Take a pulse ox, you'll see like seventy five or something, and then they'll she'll come twenty four hours later. It's ninety five, right? Um. So a lot of them, a lot of them often after one course of ivermectin, the the the, the sats went up. But especially if you're obese, it, it would take a little bit longer. It's a big inflammation. It is anti-inflammatory, but it's all you know the deck you're dealing with. If it's no early treatment, only at the moderate hospitalization stage, at the ER stage, and they're 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 obese, they have at least one problem, some had multiple comorbidities, and it's Delta. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen right away, and some will still progress until you get that full course into them. And they're gonna and they, they might have to sit there in that hospital bed on on nasal cannula on BiPAP for a number of days. But it will noticeably keep out of ICU and noticeably reduce mortality. That is what we've seen. But again, that's not even our thing. Our thing was the methylpred, together with that. Um nitazoxanide, ciproheptidine. Again, you have the right doctor for the right symptom at the right time. And to and to do most of that before you get to the hospital. So it's a straw man. They create the most straw man thing. It was brilliantly done, this trial. If you read it, they had to know what we know. They created the perfect thing because their own study shows, even with that raw hand, almost, you know, twice as many obese in the ivermectin trial. 100% of them comorbidities. Delta didn't get pre-hospital treatment, yet still 70% reduction in mortality at a 91% confidence interval. But you know what? The doctors I deal with don't have a 70% reduction. They have more of a 99% reduction in mortality. And that's through multi-drug therapy as early as possible, Obviously, as late as the stage is, you update it with the doses and the different type of drugs. Again, you know, Urso was telling me he 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 was using on people 500 milligrams of methylpred. The steroids are so so, but high dose. That's the most important thing. If I if someone's sats are dropping, you got to get antihistamines in them. You got to get um, the <clears throat> nebulized budesonide, and you need some sort of systemic steroid. And the best one is methylpred. That's what we're talking about. Ivermectin is not a steroid. And if you're already comorbid and you're already in having breathing problems, that's going to be that's going to take a, a while to get you out of that. But we we could guarantee as much as we can that you're not going to die. That's what this study was all about. Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. See, we're not even asking that it becomes standard of care. We're just saying We'll pay for it. Just let us do it on our own. No, no. Paxlovid would have flunked this trial in a second. And meanwhile, this did not flunk it. It flunked their arbitrary, retarded 
primary endpoint. But as they admit, their secondary endpoint, but that's their secondary endpoint. I think to the average person, it's the most important thing. Did you die or not? 70% reduction. And again, don't yell at me at the p-value. That's not my fault. That's their fault. Why didn't they do more people? They certainly had the money. They certainly had the time. Something is very funny about that. And the answer is very simple. Because you well know if they would have had another, let's say, probably 100 people, maybe maybe 50 more in each group, and the same trend would have held, yeah, they could have probably said they're garbage about, well, yeah, it didn't, you know, the, 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 that, that middle, that arbitrary middle ground wouldn't have uh, proceeded. But then they would have had there, they would have had to disclose the secondary outcome. Um, yeah, statistically significant p-value, 70% reduction mortality. Oh. And it's known and established and safe and cheap. So, yeah. So they artfully made sure to get the p-value in a way that the confidence in interval is 91, not 95%. But that's bull. That is complete bull. That is the brilliance to what they did here. I'm sorry to go long here. I didn't mean to do that. I knew I would once I'd get into it. But it's so important just to zoom out going back to what we're talking about. Okay? What we're talking about. Um... The fraud is so deep, you can't trust a word they say. It is so, so deep. Um, by the way, the paper classifies severe D disease as stage five and below where the W... So, so I, I just wanted to say this. Um, so... Um, the WHO has a nine score. There's a score from zero to nine. Zero is uninfected. Number one is asymptomatic. Number two is symptomatic, but not much of a problem. You know, and they kind of go on and on. Um, the hospital stage is four. And when you start needing nasal cannula and oxygenation, is stage five. Okay? Okay, so this is a very interesting thing. I'm just going to put the icing on the cake for you. These clowns, so I told you the starting point was already moderate COVID. They were hospitalized by definition, okay? Either four, they were probably fours and fives, okay? They were hospitalized. 66% had COVID lung. The endpoint they said progressed, and we didn't understand, like, really? Like, more people in ivermectin would, would progress? What do you mean progress? Like, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, we talked about, you know, my theory that I think, you know, they had more, more obesity and maybe some other comorbidities that explains it. Okay, Daniel, so that evens it out, but why didn't it do better? Why didn't it do better? Well, I explained that for you already, that it works before and it works when you're stable, but once you're already in problems, it, it will take a little bit of time, um, and, and hence, you didn't. You know, it's kind of like a pilot. You know, in in, in a you know simulation when you're playing one of those games and you 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 lose control of the plane and you're kind of like going under, and you got the steering wheel and you you know you have enough uh, height that you're not going to crash, but you're still going to go go down before you make the U-turn up. That's kind of what it is, but it's even more profound than the way I'm making it out to be. So not only did did they define um, up early treatment. 
So let's say earlier it would be a stage two, three, and they defined it as four. As four. They defined down the endpoint of severe. So this guy, and I want to give him the credit to follow him. He is Alexandros Marinos on Twitter. Alexandros M, at Alexandros M on Twitter. And he has a Twitter thread on this and, and brilliant points he made. The WHO defines severe disease as beginning at score six. A score six is you're on high flow oxygen. Okay, severe is high flow. Stage five is nasal cannula. Okay, so the WHO defines severe as level six. In the study, they define severe as five. So dude, comorbid, every single one of them. Slightly more seems to be in the ivermectin group. In, some, in, in the ones that matter, especially obesity. It's Delta. You didn't get treatment before the hospital. 66% have COVID lung. You come in. At that moment, they have no oxygen on them. But very quickly, if you're in the hospital, well, they're probably going to give you oxygen. So right now, you went from stage four to five. Boom, you went from early to severe. You progressed. Because they defined early as four instead of two, three. One, two, three. And they defined severe as five instead of six. There's no way, there's no drug around I mean, even for non-comorbid people, if you're already holding by going to the hospital, even if you got at the ER ivermectin into them that minute, it's not going to have a reduction. Mean, not everyone's going to proceed to nasal cannula. Let's say, let's say some won't. But among those who do in the versus the control, you're not going to see a reduction. It's brilliant. So here, I, I it took me a half an hour to present this, but I think it was worth it. Here you see such a convincing thing, JAMA, randomized controlled blinded placebo, and they say there's no difference, it's a nothing. And really, they showed the exact opposite. Folks, this is a microcosm of the fraud they've been perpetrating if you look at their own stuff, much less the fact that we're just relying on what they put down, which I'm sure is fraudulent and everything they do is fraudulent. We've done a good job debunking the fraud. Our job in the coming days is to neutralize the force. That's where we're at now. We're winning on the fraud. We're winning on the information war. Now it's about strategy. I'm going to be working on this every day this week. We're going to have some important guests on. Vaccine injury, vaccine trial, uh, fraud. Um, as always, I take your advice. Email me, dharwoods at blazemedia.com. Please send the show to everyone you know. Uh, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.